coming to you from Sherpa Chalet in beautiful downtown Mount Podcastia. It's time for entertainment interviews in the Sherpa screening room. Grab an aisle seat and a bucket of popcorn, but don't crunch too loud or you'll miss the show. Now, here's your host, Jim, the podcast Sherpa. Hello out there to my Rebels of the Sherpa Lucian. It's me, Jim the Podcast Sherpa, and it's another week of the Sherpa Screening Room. Got a little question for you. Do you have a lot of stories of celebrity encounters? Well, doing this podcast gives me the opportunity to talk to celebrities and people in the entertainment business, but I don't usually have too many celebrity encounters. But my guest this week, he's a guy named Steve Stolier, and he actually lived in the great Groucho Marx's house for the last few years of Groucho's life. And he was his assistant and his personal secretary. And he ended up writing a book later on called Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House. He's also written a new book, The Imperfect Storm, which is about actor, comedian, and director Howard Storm. And he co-wrote it with Howard Storm himself. Speaking of books, today's podcast is being brought to you by Audible, and you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash Sherpa. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And by the way, if you do sign up, one of the free books that you can get is the download of Steve's book, Raised Eyebrows. So let's head on down to the screening room and Listen in on my conversation with author Steve Stolier. Hey there, Rebels. You know, I'm lucky enough today to have a guest who has actually been in touch with classic Hollywood. You know, I've been talking to a lot of people who are making movies and are just getting started in the business, or maybe they've started recently. But my guest today actually lived in the house of Groucho Marx, and he was his personal secretary and archivist. And he wrote a book about his experience living in the house called Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House. And he's also the author of a more recent book called The Imperfect Storm from Henry Street to Hollywood, which is about Howard Storm. And we're going to talk a little bit about both of those books and about Steve's life. And I kind of gave it away. His name is Steve Stolier. Hi, Steve. Oh, you're talking about me. I was I just was enjoying what you had to say about whoever this person was. And then imagine my embarrassment realizing you were introducing me. You didn't want to kind of come up sooner or later, right? Yes. Well, these things have to be we have to get them out of the way. The preliminaries like who are we talking to on this show? You know, what? why don't we start if you could tell us a little bit about what your life was like up till college? Well, I was born in St. Louis, and our family moved to L.A. when I was about eight because uh, of my father's job. And uh, it was a fairly normal, middle-class, unremarkable family. Um, both my parents loved old movies and old comedies. My mom's favorite movie was It Happened One Night, and uh, my dad was a big Marx Brothers fan, and they... They would use lines from their films before I knew who the Marx Brothers were. Like you, you've been, you sound like you were vaccinated with a phonograph needle. Also, I had an Uncle Joe in St. Louis who was a balding man with a mustache, glasses, and smoked a cigar and wiggled his eyebrows. And so when I ended up discovering Groucho naturally, I thought, hey, he's just like Uncle Joe. But I, uh, I. You know, all my friends in uh, high school and then in into college were into old movies, specifically old comedies, and uh, and old horror movies, the, the Universal horror films. And we would just uh, in those days before TCM and Blu-ray and uh, streaming and on demand and stuff, we would look through the TV guide and look to see what movies were on the local stations. And if something started at like 2.45 a.m., we just sort of willed ourselves to stay awake past Johnny Carson, past Tom Snyder, into that netherworld of, of uh, car commercials and whatever, and somehow managed to stay up. And it's like, wow, I watched Horse Feathers last night or Gary Cooper and Lives of a Bengal Lancer. And 
Some of them are movies I haven't seen since then, believe it or not. Now, of course, it's a cinch. You know, you talk about it, you mention a movie, and then later that day, you hear from the person you're talking, you were talking to, and they say, yeah, I just watched it on your recommendation. And I think, man, it's such a cinch now. It's shooting fish in a barrel to see these old classics. Back then, you just, it, it was the luck of the draw, uh, although there were a few revival houses that would show old movies. But again, you couldn't choose what they were showing. You got their monthly schedule and then thought, is it worth going out there to see this movie? So I had a real fascination with old movies and celebrities and comedians. As a matter of fact, on the plane out here from St. Louis in 62, Red Skelton was sitting in the seat in front of us and several seats in front of him was Andy Griffith. And I thought, wow, life is really like I Love Lucy, where people just bump into famous people everywhere. I'm still on the airplane from St. Louis to Los Angeles, and there's two huge TV stars here. And Skelton was wonderful. My uh, older sister was crying because her boyfriend didn't make it to the airport in time to see her off. So Skelton gave her his monogrammed handkerchief, and then my sister was interested in in drawing and art and sketching. And so Skelton drew <clears throat> with a pencil. He drew the still life from the front of the menu. That was when they had menus on airplanes. And then for me, he had one of those pop guns that that you push the back and a cork came out on a string. And he had that tucked inside his suit jacket pocket. And every now and again, Without saying anything, he would just turn around and shoot me with the little pop gun. I'm sure he would be, you know, wrestled to the ground by security trying to get through airports now with a, a weapon hidden in his. But it was in '62, that sort of thing was okay. So Red Skelton kept the Stolier children amused on the long flight, you know, propellers. It wasn't a jet to L.A. And boy, was I disappointed once we landed. It was years before I saw anyone that I ever recognized again. I was spoiled by that, uh, that flight. I think the first celebrity I saw after that was character actor Jesse White, who was the Maytag repairman, and he was also in Harvey with Jimmy Stewart uh, at, a, at a restaurant. But it was always a kick to see a celebrity. And as my mom would say, she would say, is that someone over there? As if you don't really have value unless you're someone I've seen on the television set or in a theater. Is that, isn't that someone? Look over there, that guy, isn't he someone? So I realized that it was put at a premium to be something of a celebrity or a familiar face. Your adventure with Groucho really began when you were in college because you were basically a man on a mission, right? <laughs> I wanted to meet Groucho Marx. He was my favorite, uh, easily, far and away my favorite. When I you know, finally discovered the Marx Brothers films, I just uh, did whatever it took to, to finally see them. But I knew that Groucho was in his early 80s and increasingly frail health, and I thought, I'm never going to get to meet him. I did get to see his one-man show, at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in in late 1972. Uh, ticket was $9.50, which was a fortune for me. Now you can't park there for $9.50. <laughs> but even from the back of the Dorothy Chandler, it was electrifying to realize that there in three dimensions in front of me at a distance was the object of my affection. And I clapped so hard that my hands were stinging the next morning because it meant so much for me to know that clapping from my two hands was reverberating with his eardrum because I knew that that was the, the closest I would ever get to him. And my big consolation prize that night was going down into the parking structure afterwards and I spotted Zeppo Marx, the fourth brother, the straight, who I recognized from uh, interviews. So I thought, well, I can't meet Groucho, but I can at least meet Zeppo. And I went up to him and I said, excuse me, Mr. Marx, I just wanted to tell you how much I've enjoyed your films. And he said, you weren't enjoying me. You were enjoying my brothers. And I thought, well, that'll teach me to deliver a compliment to Zeppo Marx. 
little did I know that inside of a couple of years, he and I would end up dating the same woman. Uh, very strange how fate works out, but that was down the pike a bit. And then, so after seeing Groucho in person at the Dorothy Chandler, it fueled my my obsession. I mean, after all, fan is just short for fanatic. That's where the word fan comes from. And I was, you know, like the obsessive fans of today, except I just wanted to meet him. I didn't want to marry him or kill him or things that people do these days. And there was a, uh, a restaurant, a pizza place in uh, Beverly Hills called Jacopo's Pizzeria. And I went there with a friend of mine and I saw that on the menu they had the Groucho and I thought, well, you know, it's like at the delicatessens where they name something after all the comedians because they came in once a year. And I said to the waitress, does Groucho Marx really eat here? And she said, oh, yes. He was here uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact. And he was so funny. He always comes here right after we open and tries to pay with a $100 bill. And he knows that we can't make change for it. And I thought... You foolish woman, why are we wasting Groucho on you with the pizzas and the $100 bills? I went, and I thought, should I camp out at Jacopo's Pizzeria? You know, I was just desperate. And I ended up starting a committee at UCLA, where I was attending, to put pressure on Universal Studios to re-release Animal Crackers, which hadn't been seen in decades, hadn't been on television. It had been made at Paramount in 1930, but in the late 50s, when MCA Universal bought the Paramount catalog of older films, that was included in it. But because of essentially a clerical error, uh, the copyright had expired and the rights reverted back to the writers and the composers of the stage musical Animal Crackers. So George Kaufman, Maury Riskind, Harry Ruby, and Bert Kalmar. And the... Wizards at Universal didn't think it was worth spending any money to untangle the legal problem because they thought that's just pouring money down the drain, an old black and white Marx Brothers movie that people haven't seen in years. We want to put important things on like Airport 75 and Downhill Racer and, you know, the real classic films that people will remember in 50 years. <laughs> so I, I managed to get in touch with Aaron Fleming, who was the woman that was really... She had started out as Groucho's secretary, then became his manager. And as he grew weaker from age and hardening of the arteries and some strokes, he grew more dependent on her. And she really was in charge of making the decisions in his life. And she convinced Groucho to come to UCLA to help us publicize this group of kids that are trying to get this Marx Brothers movie off the shelf. And so I finally got to meet my hero, and I said, Groucho, I am very happy to be meeting you after all these years. And he said, well, you should be. Uh, and Aaron Fleming said, this is Steve Stoliar. He's the one who's trying to get Animal Crackers released. And Groucho said, did you get it? And I said, not yet, but we're working on it. And he said, well, you better get it or I'll fire you. And I said, I didn't realize I was working for you. How much are you paying me? And he said, a little less than nothing. And we were off and running. I, my heart was pounding out of my chest as I sat next to him and we answered questions from the press. I mean, there was a real crush of students because Groucho was speaking in a soft voice and they wanted to hear what he said. Uh, it just was, I just had to keep pinching myself that here I was next to my hero chatting away as if uh, we were two old pals when, in fact, I was just internally sweating up a storm. And, in fact, Universal relented and uh, cleared the rights and decided that they would show it in L.A. and New York and then be done with it and didn't want to hear any more about it. And it ended up uh, breaking the house record at the UA Westwood that had been set by the French Connection several years earlier. And it was very gratifying for me to be at a coffee shop in Westwood, because it was UCLA, and see the line all the way down the block to see this old Marx Brothers movie that nobody thought anybody would care about. 
And then it had another premiere in New York, and Groucho went there for that and was just almost trampled by the crowds. They had police on horseback with batons trying to keep the crowds. He was almost torn apart like Frank Sinatra or the Beatles or something. (laughs) Uh, And then as a reward for having gotten this, I mean, it was a labor of love to finally get it seen again because all Marx that was the holy grail for Marx Brothers fans because it was their second film and Groucho was Captain Spaulding and it had one morning I shot an elephant in my pajamas it was a classic that everyone knew about but no one had seen and now they could finally see it so I thought well my work here is done but no it was just beginning and because a couple of summer jobs fell through that year 74 for which I remain eternally grateful that they fell through, I called Aaron Fleming and said, is there anything at all that you need someone that... And she said, well, actually, I used to be Groucho's secretary, but now that I'm his manager, we need someone to handle all of the fan mail that's been coming in and to organize all of Groucho's memorabilia that's going to be donated to the Smithsonian and we need someone who really knows their Marx Brothers. And in in my mind's eye, it's, it's like a Tex Avery cartoon where she's still talking on the phone and I'm already at the doorbell in Beverly Hills and she still thinks she's talking to him. It wasn't quite like that, but that's sort of how I remember it. And I figured I'd be working in some office building on Wilshire Boulevard and maybe he'd come in once or twice a month to sign checks and I'd get to see him. and. It, And Aaron said, oh, no, dear, you'll work right inside his house. There's a room here you can use for your office. It was his last wife's painting studio. And you can come and go as you wish and make your own hours. And I thought, they're paying me money to come and go as I want inside Groucho's house, covered with memorabilia and all these wonderful photos and letters. And, of course, Groucho himself, just down the hall, Um, And I was always welcome at the lunch table. There wasn't any sense of, you know, the help should eat in the kitchen. So even if it was just Groucho and me and no famous celebrities, that was fabulous because I got to listen to his stories and ask all the questions I'd been dying to ask him. You know, I won't say that we became friends. I think that overstates it. It would be easy to inflate my importance because there's so few people to say that's not true. But it was more than employer-employee. I would say it was sort of like uh, an uncle and nephew, sort of like an affectionate mutual appreciation. He appreciated the fact that I was into all that old stuff, that, that at, you know, I was 19 when I got the job. And, and so because I cared about George Gershwin and the Algonquin Roundtable and, and their movies and all that, he realized that we weren't all a bunch of pot smoking rock and roll hippies that, you know, maybe there was some hope for the younger generation because, you know, I expressed myself well and and cared about the kind of music and pop culture that he did. And then there was also appreciating him for being, well, someone who knew personally people that seem mythic to me, like W.C. Fields and George Gershwin and James Thurber and uh, Irving Thalberg and George S. Kaufman, these people you read about, but he was friends with them. And then also, of course, he was a man from 1890. He was a 19th century, he was literally Victorian. She, Victoria was on the throne when he was born in New York. He, his firsthand memories went from before the Wright brothers to after the moon landing, which is just a staggering chunk of history that he was witness to. So just hearing, talking, getting to know someone that could talk to me about what America was like at the turn of the century was just, it was just such a rich experience for me. Now, being such a big movie buff and especially a fan of the Marx Brothers, when you were archiving some of the stuff for the Smithsonian, were there anything that you had in your hands that you actually felt like you were holding the Holy Grail? There was something that I wasn't able to see, unfortunately, he had in his film collection there was one reel of 16 millimeter film and on it on the box in Groucho's handwriting it said the Marx Brothers in Central Park Minnie and Harry Ruby on a horse 
And unfortunately, the, the guy who, had, who would come by to run things, we tried to thread it into Groucho's machine and the sprocket holes would break uh, in the leader. And we realized that it was selfish of us to try to watch this because it would probably destroy the film. I honestly don't know if anyone ever transferred that. I'd like to think it's at least safe if it hasn't been transferred, but then now you're talking about brittle film from the late 20s, and I guess there's, I don't know, maybe the odds are against it. But that was something that... But there were so many things. I mean, photos of the brothers out of makeup from vaudeville and uh, uh, scripts with Groucho's annotated changes to the lines from when they'd take the shows on the road and see which line got a bigger laugh and then they'd change it. Just a a remarkable uh, assortment of just like wading ankle deep in in clippings from vaudeville and, you know, letters from Harry Truman and Irving Berlin and just a remarkable... A sketch of the three Marx Brothers by James Thurber and uh, Rube Goldberg drew a picture of Groucho and just amazing. But really, it was the humans that I interacted with that left the biggest impression. A lot of his famous friends came over to the house, and like you said, you were you were a welcome guest at the table. Right. So and because they didn't know who I was, so there was no sense of you know who is this person. I think they figured. If he's in the house, I, I don't know whether he's Groucho's grandson or what, but I guess he belongs here. So no one really had any kind of attitude. I also found out that uh, trial and error that I felt a, a much stronger kinship to Groucho's friends than I did to Aaron Fleming's kind of quirky, flighty, younger set of Hollywood. Uh, even though they were closer to me in age, I was much more of a kindred spirit with his old writers and directors and, you know, people like George Burns and Bob Hope would come by. And it was just a remarkably rich experience. And then they, like Groucho, they appreciated that, uh, you know, a, a kid like me knew what these guys were talking about. And now I'm 65 and now I've beca- now I've become one of those old people that when someone says, oh, my granddaughter was watching Monkey Business and was laughing at Harpo, and I find myself thinking, it's very reassuring to hear that some of the kids appreciate this old material, because it asks a lot of millennials, you know, to sit still for a black and white movie that's filled with references that were you know, instantly understandable in 1931, but what does it mean to them now? Then there's the whole political correctness thing, which drives me crazy, where people retroactively are politically correct. Like, why did Groucho have to flirt with that woman on You Bet Your Life and look at her sweater? Or, you know, why did that, you know, why did they have to have a bunch of happy dancing black people in the barnyard with Harpo. That's, you know, that's so insulting. And it's like, that was 1937. Stop trying to. So it asks a lot of them to see things in historical perspective. You know, and of course, I run across any number of people, even in their 40s and 50s, who just can't place the name. And it's kind of sobering to mention the Marx Brothers, nothing. Groucho, the mustache, nothing. And, you know, I've gotten past being upset or thinking well then they're just ignorant stupid because you know it's like there's so much for them to see at, at any given moment all the channels all the youtube all the everything and the marsh brothers made like 12 movies you know why would they know about these things although when i was growing up all my friends knew who these people from the 20s and 30s were. It wasn't like, well, that was before I was born, so I have no idea who Mark Twain was. Bringing that up, I was wondering if maybe you could actually help me out with the situation. I told a couple of people that I said, oh, I'll be talking to Steve Stolier, who, who worked for Groucho Marx, and like you said, they give you the blank look like, mm. who is that? 
Yeah. What do you say? What What is the best way to make them get like the real feeling well, of depends. who Groucho was? I mean, if I'm you know if I'm just you know getting groceries at the store and someone notices that my watch has the Marx Brothers on it and they ask about it, I'll just give them a really quick. They were these four funny brothers that made comedies in the 30s and 40s, and uh, were really popular. And you know by that time I'm leaving the grocery store, but. You know, certainly there's no such thing as explaining something to someone and then they laugh. You can't, it's like with if you don't get a joke and someone explains it, you don't delay laugh. So you can't expect someone to appreciate Groucho and the Marx Brothers through description. There's really no substitute for just showing them something. And then there's no guarantee that they'll relate to it or they'll think it. There was a guy I was working with once at a production company and he was a couple of decades younger than I was. And he hadn't seen any Marx Brothers films. He was in his 30s. And instead of saying, you dare to engage me in conversation and you've never even seen. Instead, he thought, well, if you think so much of them, I'm going to check it out. He got duck soup, I think, at a video rental place. You can ask your grandparents what video <laughs> rental places. So he saw duck soup, which for me was them at their best. You know, people have different favorites. They, they made a trio of films, 31 to 33, Monkey Business, Horse Feathers, and Duck Soup. And it's like this golden trinity of the finest, purest Mark stuff. It's like they cleared their throats with the first two films that were based on stage plays and were kind of stagey, Coconuts and Animal Crackers. And after Duck Soup, they sort of were tamed when they went over to MGM and they weren't as crazy and surreal. But to me, Duck Soup is their best and craziest. So I asked, I said, Chris, so what did you think of it? He said, I don't know. I don't really like slapstick. And I thought, you've relegated them to slapstick? You're, this is not the Three Stooges. This is, this is you know, sophisticated. But, of course, one of the charms of the Marx Brothers is that they were a blend of physical comedy. I mean, you know, wallpapering Esther Muir in, in A Day at the... Races is the kind of thing that Larry Moe and Curly could conceivably have done. But the thing that was made it so winning for me was that you had the, you know, Harpo's pantomime and the physical stuff, uh, you know, uh, uh, snipping a cigar with scissors and cutting off someone's tuxedo tails and things. And then you had the brilliance of Groucho's jokes and the broken English interplay with him and Chico and you know when you see the names rolling by George S. Kaufman and S.J. Perelman was one of the great wits of the 20th century wrote for the New Yorker it's this really interesting blend of sophisticated humor and and yes yeah, slapstick so I was disappointed he didn't like duck soup but my initial thought was you you sold them too short. I know you never got to meet Chico or Harpo because I believe they had passed. Already, yeah, but they, you got to meet. They not only had they passed, but they were dead. Uh, Chico <laughs> died in '61 and Harpo died in '64. So I was just a kid then. Uh, there were still three Marx Brothers. You know, it depending on your level of knowledge, you think there were only three, but no, there were five. So Zeppo, as I mentioned before, who was the straight man in on Broadway and in their first in their Paramount films, the first five films, he was still around. He left the act after Duck Soup and became a very successful agent. I mean, he ended up representing uh, Clark Gable and Carol Lombard and Barbara Stanwyck and Robert Taylor and Lucille Ball and Lana Turner, and he was very highly thought of in the in the world of agents. And then his brother, Gummo, had been the original straight man in vaudeville and left the act to go fight World War One. And when he came back, he, he stayed out of the business, except that he ended up representing... It was interesting. Zeppo was a, a highly thought-of agent, but he never represented the Marx Brothers. It, it was Gummo that represented them and represented Groucho through You Bet Your Life. So Zeppo and Gummo lived in Palm Springs, and uh, I did get to meet them on several occasions. And as I mentioned, Zeppo ended up asking out a young lady that I had been dating at the time after we broke up. I had taken her to dinner at Groucho's house when Zeppo was visiting from Palm Springs, 
and she was young and attractive, blonde hair, blue eyes, had a great personality, and Zeppo was kind of captivated by her. He apparently he kind of picked up where Chico left off in terms of womanizing um, and gambling. And he had recently divorced Barbara Marks, who then married Sinatra, became Barbara Sinatra, the grand dame of the family. So after, after she and I broke up, I figured, well, he's been around the block a few times. So I sent him a letter asking if he had any advice for dealing with the heartbreak of a, a breaking up. And he called me. I was kind of floored that he called me from Palm Springs. Steve Zeppo Marx, how are you? Listen, I got your letter, uh, and I would never want to step on your toes. You understand that. But uh, do you think that Linda would go out with me? And I thought, wait a minute. I'm asking you for advice, and you're hitting on the person I'm asking about. I mean, she was 19, I was 20, and he was 74. But she had gotten a kick out of meeting him at Groucho's house, and I said, well, I'll, uh, let me see, and I'll let you know. So I saw her on campus, and I said, you'll never believe this, but Zeppo kind of, and she sort of was just intrigued at the idea of the experience of it. So they went out once. He said, I took her to dinner in San Diego and a high ally game in Tijuana. I guess... That, that was Zeppo's idea of a first date, was a dinner in San Diego and a high alive game. I don't even know if they still play high alive, that curved scoop thing, kind of handball against it. He said, I want you to know I never even kissed a goodnight. Uh, I want you to know that. Uh, she was very nice, but really all she did was talk about herself. And then I saw her on campus, and I said, how, how did your date go with Zeppo? And she said, he was really nice, but, you know, all he did was talk about himself. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's very interesting. But thereafter, whenever I'd be at a party at Groucho's and Zeppo would be there, he would introduce me to someone and say, this is Steve. He's a nice fellow. He and I dated the same girl, but he got further with her than I did. And that was my official introduction whenever Zeppo was there. So he was, you know, he was great fun, really. He doesn't get the credit he deserves because he came in late in the, you know, the, the other three brothers' characters were well-formed by the time Zeppo joined. So he was just sort of the handsome, romantic lead guy. And I don't think he gets the credit he deserves. But a lot of people say that off-camera he was the funniest and he really did the room lit up when he would come in and he did have a great uh, devilish sense of humor he's you know at that dinner when he met linda he said you know uh, you and linda ought to come down to palm springs and visit me sometime and i said i don't know i was there when i was about nine and it was just beastly hot and he said well when were you there in the summer and I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, Steve, it's cold in Alaska in the winter, too. So <laughs> words of wisdom from Zeppo Marx. I, I know in your book, you do actually mention the situation with Aaron Fleming. Mm -hmm. And I know that there were obviously issues there. And there was also like a battle for the conservatorship, too, over. Rochester yes, they, things took uh, got quite dark. I mean, it was like my dream came true over and over again, getting to spend time there and getting to know Groucho and become a trusted member of the household and all that. But between Groucho's fading health and Aaron Fleming, uh, she was a, a volatile personality who was later diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic and also took prescription and recreational drugs because this was the 70s. Uh, it was that was a volatile mix, and she was volatile to begin with. So it was very difficult dealing with her her mood swings, and she would perceive enemies where there weren't any. And then when there was someone who was her enemy, she would laugh it off. And it was, but he was kind of uh, dependent on her, and so it was a difficult uh, balancing game to stay on her good side, assuming she had one, and I ended up being the longest surviving employee there, so I guess I did something right. But there was a big fight over conservatorship in his final months between these 
warring factions. One was Aaron Fleming and her friends, and the other was Groucho's son, Arthur, and his friends. And it's one of those, uh, the color of truth is gray situations where you're not really dealing with heroes and villains because Arthur had sort of distanced himself from Groucho and they had had their own rocky relationship for years before Aaron even entered the picture. And Aaron had said that if Arthur were ever in charge of Groucho's life, he'd put him in a home, which Groucho was afraid of. So it was very difficult trying to navigate between these, but I was actually put in charge of the house on weekends and had to be sort of a traffic cop as people would come to visit him, depending on whose team they were from. They didn't want to run into each other because it would get shouting matches and all this. So it, it, you know, and I would reflect on the idea that I had been hired just to handle fan mail and send out autographs and take things into Groucho and take dictation and stuff and deal with the memorabilia. And here I was towards the end, I, I ended up being there the last three years of his life, really looking out for his well-being, you know, making sure that the, the nurses shifts and who, who was coming after this and did he have any plans to, is he going somewhere or someone coming to visit and what would be a good time? And it was a remarkable I mean, I was. it was very gratifying to be able to perform that kind of service for him because I had thought, you know, well, I helped get Animal Crackers re-released and that's pretty cool. And then here I am, my my fading hero is, is like reliant on my judgment, on at least on the weekends, when Nat Perrin, who was Groucho's longtime friend and writer friend, was made temporary conservator. It was, uh, you know, it, it was kind of a... a a raggedy fade out for Groucho, unfortunately, but that's often the case with, you know, I hear from people who've re- who read my book, Raised Eyebrows, and they've said it, it really reminded me of when my grandfather was, was fading out or my, or I had a friend, a, a wonderful old woman that was like a grandmother to me. And I, I know what that's like to try to look after someone. And, you know, there, there was a, certainly a dark side to my experience there and so now the book is being developed as a film and it and it will in fact be essentially a drama because it's it's the story of this fading elderly legend in comedy and this ambitious younger woman and then this wide-eyed innocent kid dropped into this petri dish and uh you know, it has elements of my favorite year and uh, my week with Marilyn and uh, even like Sunset Boulevard to some degree. What did his brothers think of all of this when the, all of this was going on? Well, what I found was the people who didn't spend that much time around Aaron thought she was great because she would be on her best behavior. You know, I would meet people who would say... I don't know. I I went over there once and I thought that she was really wonderful for him. And my answer to that is there's also a lot of pictures of O.J. Simpson and Nicole Brown looking like the sweetest, most romantic couple (laughs) in Hollywood. So you can't, you know, there's people that drink, but they drink in private or they're, they're, you know, their spousal abuse and that sort of thing. But they don't do that when they're at a restaurant. So Zeppo thought, uh, Aaron was great for Groucho and you know as I say truth is gray she did have there were positive elements to what she brought to Groucho like renewed interest in him and the Marx Brothers so that he sort of went out uh, as a legend and she did tend to get him you know more excited about TV appearances and socializing and that sort of thing because when she came along he was had just divorced his last wife and just was rattling around by himself in this Beverly Hills house. So she did, you know, pick him up and dust him off. But uh, his longtime friends really questioned the wisdom of doing that since he was, you know, fading uh, and she was very ambitious. But there were positive elements to it. So a lot of the people that came by occasionally 
thought that, you know, boy, he's lucky to have someone like that in his life at this point. Um, but as his cook, Martha, said, he's lucky to have someone in his life, but very unlucky that it happens to be Miss Fleming. And that's kind of sums it up. It's funny that you were basically in your 20s mm-hmm. when all these celebrities were coming to visit him and you really had the presence of mind to write things down like this is going to be a great book. <laughs> well, no, I was certainly not thinking that. But one of the great things about the experience was that I knew and could appreciate who these people were because I was a, an old movie buff and because I had read the Groucho letters and a lot of the people he had written to were people that would come by the house. So I would have the, you know, my brain would flip to the Rolodex card of that person and say, and so my mind, okay, Nat Perrin, he worked on Monkey Business and Duck Soup and he co-created the Adams Family and Groucho called him the deacon in the Groucho letters. I don't know if you've had the experience of meeting someone when you're younger and then years later you appreciate them and go, oh, if I'd only realized that that's who that was, I'd like to go back in time and ask him what was it like or I loved you in this movie, I didn't recognize you at the time. So I was able to appreciate everybody except one person, which is a pretty good batting average. Uh, One of Groucho's oldest friends was Arthur Sheikman, who was one of his writers at Paramount. And Arthur's wife was Gloria, and Groucho always just referred to her as Gloria Sheikman. And she'd come over for lunch, and Gloria Sheikman's coming over. She's very attractive, very pleasant. What I didn't know was that was her married name, and that she was Gloria Stewart, who younger generations know as the old woman in Titanic. But if I had realized that's who she was, I would have thought, oh my God, she was the female lead in The Invisible Man with Claude Rains and The Old Dark House with Boris Karloff. And she was directed by James Whale. And she was in The 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 Gold Diggers of 1935, directed by, by Busby Berkeley. And she was in Shirley Temple movie. That was the only time I struck out with the names because he only referred to her as Gloria Sheikman. But otherwise, as each person came through, I knew who they were and I could appreciate who they were. So in terms of taking notes, uh, you know, it's funny. I had a screenwriting teacher at UCLA and he said, I hope you're keeping a diary. And I said, no, I'm not because I've been there for six months already. And so I've already missed so much to write down. What's the point of starting now? And if I had known that I still had two and a half years left there, I would have done that. But I did, I did make a habit of when Groucho said something funny or there was a funny exchange with him and some friend or a guest or an interviewer or something, I would run into my office and scribble it down on a scrap of paper, not for posterity, but so that I could then go home and tell people or writing letters to friends of mine who were at different campuses around America and say, Groucho said this funny thing. And often when they were interviewers, they were people left some of Groucho's funniest stuff out because they would be at the interviewer's expense. Like one time Groucho sang a song for an interviewer and, you know, Groucho sang in his movies and the brothers started out as singers in vaudeville. And the guy said, where did you learn to sing? And Groucho said, I've been singing all my life. Where, where did you learn to write? Or maybe you haven't. And I remember this other guy said, how has movie making changed since the days when you and your brothers were making movies? And Groucho said, they didn't used to have toilets near the sound stages, but all that's changed now. And the guy said, oh, really? How so? And Groucho looked at him and said, people don't piss anymore. <laughs> so, like, what do you think? Duh. They now have toilets near the... People don't piss anymore. That's a good title for something. Uh, <laughs> Maybe a so, follow-up book, right? Yeah. So I still have, you know, it's funny. I still have that clump of scrawled notes and the now large rusty paper clip holding them together. But those were things I was able to sprinkle into raised eyebrows while I was writing it. Um, people had told me over the years, you ought to write a book about this because they'd take me to lunch and they'd ask about specifics and I would tell them, yeah, this I met that guy and here's what happened and da da da. But I never thought there'd be a book because I thought I was such a footnote to his life. I came in at the end, you know, not during the Halcyon days. 
But I thought, well, maybe I could put the best things together and have an article for Esquire or Vanity Fair or something. So I sat down. Also, I've had a passion for archaeology and history my whole life. And I sat down like an archaeological dig going through all the newspaper clippings and magazines and mementos and signed things that I had uh, from 20 years earlier. You know, this was in the mid-90s I started doing this. And I started piecing together the jigsaw puzzle of my Groucho experience. And I also asked friends to Xerox and send me copies of the letters I'd sent them because I would just zip a piece of paper in the typewriter and hammer it out and send it off and forget it. And so bit by bit, I was able to reconstruct that whole period. And then while I was, it was like I, had, I was on page nine and hadn't met Groucho yet. And I thought, I think this is going to be longer <laughs> than an article. Then I worried that it would be too long for an article and too short for anything else. And it would be like I'd have like a 35-page something pamphlet or, you know, because I, I mean, I worry every chance I have, I worry about things like that. But show enough, I uh, ended up with a book-length manuscript. And after a wave of rejection slips, which took a lot out of me because people were, friends were so supportive saying, this is great. This is, it's like, this is a glimpse into behind the scenes of a Hollywood legend and all these people you write about. No one's told these stories before. Da, 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 da. And I thought, oh, good. Well, this will be easy. And my cover letter would say, this is not a biography of Groucho Marx. This is a book about a fan and his hero. And I would get rejection slips back saying, I'm sorry, but we're not interested in any Groucho Marx biographies at this time. And I'd think, you idiot i said that that's did you get past the first paragraph of the cover letter but eventually it it found a publisher and then about seven or eight years ago i uh wrote uh, an a new postscript chapter catching people up on what happened to the people that i'd written about plus some of their reactions to the original book and uh, so then it was reissued by uh, Bear Manor Media. And uh, it's raised eyebrows. My, here's my little plug. My year's inside Groucho's house. And it's in uh, paperback and Kindle and audiobook with me doing all of the voices and narration. And you can easily find it on Amazon. And if you do want a signed copy, you could go to my website, uh, www.stevestolier.com and order one and I'll be happy to inscribe it to you or whomever you wish and send it off but apart from that uh, you can find it on Amazon and as I say it is being developed as a film I don't know exactly when that'll happen they're hoping that it will go into pre-production by the end of 2020 uh, we will see I will definitely keep my fingers crossed for that because I know it'll definitely be an interesting movie. You stayed in the entertainment field because you did a lot of sc screenwriting and, it and really voiceover did, work? It changed my, I mean, it sounds like a hokey cliche, but it changed my life immersing myself in that atmosphere. And as I say, mostly because of Groucho's old friends, not Aaron's strange, <laughs> strange younger friends. <laughs> um, and it was just so appealing uh, I'd always had a, a sense of humor, but never thought I could do anything with it apart from just be, you know, pleasant company. And I, as I say, I was a history fanatic, so I was a history major at UCLA for the first two years and wasn't really sure what I was going to do with it, uh, become an archaeologist or teach history or something. But while I was working for Groucho, I shifted to motion picture television majors focusing on writing. And after I graduated, uh, after Groucho died, I got a job in the steno pool at Universal, typing scripts from 11 to 8 every day, pushing Rockford Files and Kojaks and Columbos. And uh, Animal House was one of the scripts I helped type. And uh, Melvin and Howard. I remember thinking Melvin and Howard sounded really stupid. This guy on a motorcycle with an aging uh, Howard Hughes, and it ended up winning Best Screenplay that year. So, <laughs> so much for my judgment in that. But, uh, and again, one of the things was realizing that a lot of the stuff I was typing wasn't 
all that fabulous. So maybe I could actually do something like that. And you didn't have to be a Pulitzer Prize winner to sell a script. And it was, in fact, Dick Cavett, whom I met by corresponding with him during my Groucho days, who hired me to move to New York and write for him at HBO. And that was another astonishing adventure. I lived there for two and a half years and we became really close buddies. We still are, but it was great when he was just a cross town bus away. And I mean, he introduced me to Woody Allen and now he and I are friends and have correspond. And, uh, he's, he's been like a, both of them have been like big brothers to me, not in the Orwellian sense. And, uh, yeah. And I, and I, then I came back from New York, uh, and, went to work actually back at Universal and it was weird having been a secretary there and then I had a secretary and it was and I knew her from when I was in the steno pool so it was very weird to say could you get me so and so on the phone and I kept expecting her to say Steve who do you think you are but I ended up writing uh, Simon and Simon and Murder She Wrote and the new WKRP in Cincinnati and Sliders and uh, have also you know worked producing some pop culture documentaries. I've done voice work for different animation and radio things. And, and as I say, wrote uh, Raised Eyebrows. And then more recently, co-wrote a book called The Imperfect Storm, from Henry Street to Hollywood with my friend Howard Storm, who is, I think you would say, a character. He's a great guy. He grew up in the mean streets of the Lower East Side of New York in the Depression, and he he was it was a really tough Jewish neighborhood. You know, there's so much is is written about and filmed dealing with the uh, Italian mobs and the and the Irish mobs, but listening to Howard's stories, there were some tough Jews in his neighborhood. I mean, his father grew up being friends with Louis Lepke Buckhalter and Murder Incorporated. And I mean, they, there were mobbed up people that they circulated with. And then when Howard became a young stand-up comedian in the late 40s and into the 50s, he was working at mobbed up clubs along the East Coast, dealing with made men. And uh, he actually, I mean, one of, I love this story and, and uh, it sounds apocryphal, but he swears it happened. He was at one. He was at one uh, club that was run by a man named Shaky Naples in Ohio. They were like the Naples brothers that struck fear in the hearts of anyone who heard of them. And so Howard was at the microphone doing his act, and this guy came running behind him across the stage, and running after him was a guy in black, and he fired a gun at the guy right behind Howard. So Howard freaked out and he ran and hid in the kitchen and shaky Naples came over and said, what the hell are you doing here? And Howard said, there's a guy on stage and he's shooting. And Naples said, is he shooting at you? And he said, no. And he says, then get back out there and finish a bit. And he had to go back out. He said his lips were dry and cracked and his voice was wavering and he had to hold on to the mic stand but he got through his act. There is a sort of a twisted logic to, well, you know, if he's not shooting at you, what are you complaining about? So he ended up, Howard ended up getting better gigs when he was represented by Jack Rollins, who represented Woody Allen and Dick Cavett and Mike Nichols and Elaine May and, and uh, Mort Saul and a lot of just upper echelon 50s and early 60s comedians. But as the cliche goes, what he really wanted to do was direct. And uh, he was able to hang out on the sets of Take the Money and Run and Bananas and actually helped out on them in various ways and study how Woody did a movie, did movies. And then he got his big break when Valerie Harper allowed him to direct a couple episodes of uh, Rhoda in the mid-70s she knew him because he was an improv teacher and they sort of moved in the same circles and she was impressed with his stage staging of things and that led to him being a really sought after director he directed the first three seasons of Mork and Mindy every episode so he's got a lot of stories about 
about Robin Williams and how Pam Dauber doesn't get the credit she deserves and comparing and contrasting the improvisational styles of of uh, Robin Williams with his hero Jonathan Winters and there's just a lot of uh, fascinating showbiz stories so I co-wrote it with him I sort of got myself into it uh, and so I had no excuse for not working on it with him because for years people would people would talk about what a great storyteller he was you know a lot of these old guys that are able to tell these long involved stories that just get funnier and funnier and one time I said to him, you know, Howard, when you go, you're taking all of these stories with you. And there was a pause, and he said, I know myself, and I know I'll never do this. I'll never get around to it. Will you write it with me, and we'll be partners? And I thought, well, what am I supposed to say? No, no, I want you to do the book, but don't call me. And it really was this wonderful experience. And one of the things I brought to it was bringing out some of the darker elements of his life because there's nothing wrong with it just being a compendium of funny interesting show business stories but when you have things like death and divorce and crises of confidence and career setbacks things like that it I think gave it more texture and more richness so it wasn't just and then I met Cary Grant and then Judy Garland and I went here and so those things are in there but you also get a sense of who this guy was. He also was was blacklisted for a few years, not as a communist sympathizer, but because he testified on behalf of Valerie Harper when she was fired from the sitcom that she was working on. And he was expected, Howard was expected to side with NBC, the corporation, and say, yes, she was difficult to work with and she was late and they were justified. And instead, he stuck up for her on the witness stand. And at one point, the the attorney for NBC said, would you consider Miss Harper a friend? Yes. And uh, as a matter of fact, didn't she give you your first directing job? She did on Rhoda. And you're grateful for that, aren't you? Yes. So wouldn't it be fair to say that there isn't anything you wouldn't do for Miss Harper? No. What wouldn't you do for her? Lie. And he said he looked and he saw Harper's attorney whisper something in her ear and she told him that what he said was, we just won this case. And in fact, they did and they won millions for wrongful termination. Mm -hmm. And Howard was on a number of lists because of that because he was not expected to side with the star. But he, you know, he had such integrity and he said it was a real struggle for a while till that till that faded away and he was able to get gigs again but he said what made him really proud was when his kids would come home from school and their parents were in the business and they would say we heard what your dad did and we think that was really cool and brave of him and so he he was able to feel the gratification of his kids pride in that Anyway, it's an interesting book. Uh, Woody Allen loved it, and and Richard Lewis said it's one of the most gratifying reads. Pam Dauber said, if I'd known you were that connected, I would have been to work on time, because there's all these gangster stories interspersed with it. So, <laughs> If you look on Howard's IMDb pages, you can see if you owned a television set for like the last 30 or so years, you've definitely seen a program that he's oh, worked yeah. on. Oh, yeah. I mean, he did some Laverne and Shirley's. He did New Heart. He did Everybody Loves Raymond. He worked with a lot of stand-up people. He, he also was one of the funny guys in the Delicatessen in uh, Broadway, Danny Rose, where they keep cutting back to people telling Danny Rose stories. As a matter of fact, because Will Jordan recently died, Howard is the last surviving member of the circle of funny old guys in in uh, Broadway. Danny Rose. So yeah, he's been an actor and a director and an improv teacher and uh, stand up, and he's just a great raconteur. And so I'm really pleased to have helped him get his stories down and draw him out. And you know, I used myself as a litmus test for what the people that he talked about. Uh, if they'd be of interest to others. He got to know Desi Arnaz back when he was still with Lucy and had some really interesting observations about how creative and what a great problem solver Desi was. 
So I wanted him to go into detail on that because you never really hear about that. You just think, well, yeah, he's the Cuban band leader that played the Cuban band leader on I Love Lucy. Howard talked about how Lucy and Desi ended up owning RKO Studios and turning it into Desi Lou after Lucy had been there as a contract player in the 30s. And Desi used the cans of I Love Lucy film as collateral because uh, CBS didn't think they'd be worth anything. They just figured you'd do the show and that's it. But Desi thought, no, these may come in handy. But he's, you know, Howard said there were all sorts of times when when people would be perplexed on the set and Lucy would be upset thinking, I don't know how we're going to work this out. And Desi would just come in and go, what are you talking about? You just, you get put this here and you move that and you cut out the scene at the phone and boom, boom, boom. And he would solve the problems. So there's a lot of, there's stories about people that you know, but you haven't heard the stories. He worked with Zero Mostel when Mostel was blacklisted in the 50s because the blacklist only applied to film and TV, but you could still get gigs on Broadway and in uh, nightclubs. So Howard got to know Zero and work with him. So the imperfect storm. Did you know him through Yarmie's Army? I did and do, yes. Briefly, Yarmie's Army is a group of mostly older folk. And I guess I hang out with them because they call me kid. I mean, some of them are in their 80s and early 90s. It was started because of a guy named Dick Yarmy, who was a character actor who was Don Adams' brother, Yarmy being their actual last name. And Dick Yarmy was dying of cancer. And so this group would get together with him and take his mind off it by getting together for lunch and eventually became a month once a month dinner and they would make him laugh and they'd tell stories and all that and then when he died at the after the funeral all the guys were standing around saying why do we have to stop doing this just because he's gone and so and I this was way before I joined at, I mean at the time there were you know it was people along the lines of Don Knotts and Harvey Corman and Tim Conway and Shecky Green and Pat Harrington and Tom Poston and Pat McCormick and Chuck McCann, you know, they're, unfortunately they're gone, which is uh, which is why they allowed me in because there was plenty of room for people who weren't of that caliber. It's still great hearing people swap stories, and I at least have some that I can contribute from my own experiences or things that people I knew told me, stories that Groucho told me or Dick Cavett told me. And Howard is sort of the unofficial chairman of Yarmie's Army, calls it to order each month, and we raise our glass to Dick Yarmie, and also we mention which celebrities died that month and which of us are having a birthday that month. And then we have kind of mediocre Chinese food, tell stories, and then say goodbye till the following month. But that's how Howard and I got to know each other. And uh, he recently said that choosing me to write write it with him was one of the smartest decisions of his life, which was really gratifying to hear. And then we had sent a copy of the finished book to Woody Allen, um, even though he had read the manuscript and gave us a great blurb. Obviously, he was entitled to a complimentary copy of the finished book with photos in it and that sort of thing. And he wrote me back and he said, thank you for the book. I look forward to rereading it because it's so damn entertaining you guys really aced this one. And I thought, wow, that's big. <laughs> so that's uh, some of what I've been up to. Wow, that's just incredible. Going back to what you said earlier, lots of people, they don't have that sense of history when it comes to Hollywood. And it, it's good that there are writers like you that can bring that out, bring that to life and flesh out these people and show them that they were real people and these were their stories. Oh, and thank you, know, you. you should be yeah. aware of it. Yeah, you know, and I and you know, with the Groucho book, uh, with raised eyebrows, I didn't want to, I didn't want to attack and savage anyone, but I also didn't want to soft pedal the negative or human weaknesses of them. So there's very few people. I mean, as I say, even with Aaron Fleming, there were a number of positive things to say. She wasn't just evil incarnate, and there was no one who was just had no flaws. You know, some people. I've talked to some people who were made uncomfortable by it because they just wanted to remember the Groucho from the 30s and from You Bet Your Life. And I understand that, but these are humans that live and grow old and die. 
And also, I think one of the things that runs through the book is that Groucho's sense of humor, even though it took some sledgehammer blows from time and illness, remained. And, you know, just when I would think he would be past saying something funny, he used to, I would always bring him the uh, Hollywood trade papers, and then he'd come to the lunch table and talk to me about the clump of mail I brought him, and one day he sat down and he said, wonderful mail today, nothing but requests for money. And I said, but you got a variety, didn't you? And he said, yes, a variety of requests for money, <laughs> which is exactly as he would have phrased it at any point. And that really, that never, that that flame was never completely snuffed out. Even when he was on his deathbed at Cedar sinai Hospital, drifting in and out of lucidity and very much towards the end. The nurse came by and woke him up, which is, you know, one of the things nurses do is they want you to have a good sleep and then they, they wake you up to do something and ruin it. And Groucho said, what do you want? And she said, I want to see if you have a temperature. And he said, don't be silly. Everybody has a temperature, <laughs> meaning 98.6. So even, even, you know, in his last days, with all that he was coping with physically and mentally, he couldn't resist twisting a line and handing it back because, I mean, the mechanism was so strong. He had so much more at the end than a lot of people have at their best. I will include the links to your books on the show notes, so if anybody oh, wants to you. check them out, and also to your website as well if they want to get a signed copy. Sure, thanks. Because as Groucho, I believe, once said, outside of a dog... A book is a man's best friend, and inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. Too dark to read, yes. <laughs> All right. His name is Steve Stolier. Those books, The Imperfect Storm, From Henry Street to Hollywood, and also check out Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Very special thanks to Mr. Steve Stolier for coming on down to the Sherpa Screening Room, and thank you for listening. Hey, if you're interested in reading Steve's books, I'm including the links to both of his books, An Imperfect Storm and Raised Eyebrows, in the Sherpa Director Sheet. You know, the show notes? Yeah, that's it. And also, I've included the link to Steve's website. And speaking of website, you can also go to my website to catch this episode at SherpaLution.com, along with all the other episodes of the Sherpa Screening Room and Too Many Podcasts. Don't forget, you can follow me on social media, at Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Sharpolution, of course. And if you can, please leave a nice review for this podcast somewhere on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or Stitcher.com. So if you say this even worried while you're walking out of the Sharper Chalet, a duck will come down and give you $50, but I think Mr. Bruce has won that prize already. Mr. Bruce, take it out of here. That was a terrible impression. Steve can do it much better, but hey, I give it a shot. See you guys next time. Bye! Thanks for listening to the Sherpa Screening Room. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast. I'm Mr. Bruce, and this has been a Sherpa Loose Studios production. Viva la Sherpa Lution!